say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So this is going to be one I think there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of information that I'm going to throw at you, but there's also going to be a lot of me speculating and talking a lot and a lot of thought on this one. It's a very interesting one that I, I kind of ran across. I've mentioned it to Big D at one time, um, and it was one that I decided to do on my own. Uh, it's very interesting, um, and I hope you find it as interesting as I have. So it's called um, a couple things we're going to cover here. We're going to cover Universe 25. And then on top of that, we're also going to talk about uh, Malthusian theory, um, which kind of goes along with, with and against and in the same realm as Universe 25. Um, and there's a few other things that we'll talk about as we go along with this. Um, there's a couple other things. Behavioral sync comes into that and some other random thoughts that we'll have as we go through this. So it's very interesting. This is a fun one for me. Not fun, I guess, isn't the right word, but it's with a lot of things that we've talked about on other episodes, the um, N NWO, the New Lizard Order, all of those things that we've talked about um, with population control and everything else, that is kind of where this whole idea um, of this this theory came up i kept seeing it when we kept looking at all these other things that were, i was mentioning you know all the, the the different things like that like new lizard order new world order um all those things in the population control and bill gates and how bill gates wants to control the population um through the use of you know eugenics and everything else um 
so this became like just something like I said that I kept popping up, and I thought it was a very interesting thing to to talk about. So, um, Universe Twenty Five was a horrifying study, as they basically say. Um, and I don't know about horrifying, but a lot of articles consider it horrifying. Um, one of the ones that I really went through was History of Yesterday, um, and they're one that call it a horrifying, you know, horrifying study, but. Um, Cataclysm and apocalypse or the end of all means is kind of what we're talking about here um, Many names have been given throughout history to the end of humanity as we know it from a philosophical perspective Everything has an end therefore we have always expected it Scriptures from various religions tried to describe what the end would look like but those started to be considered only fairy tales which most of us think those as fairy tales, maybe not Big D and some of you other, you know, Christians and Catholics and Jews and Buddhists and everybody else. You all have your beliefs, you know, with the scriptures. Humanity has not really analyzed the possibility of human extinction and how would this really look like from a scientific perspective. But in 1954, there was a man named John B. Calhoun who carried out an 18-year-long study called, well, they say here it was named Universe 25. It really wasn't. That's what it became known as was Universe 25. Because what it really was is Universe 25 was the 25th iteration of this. And the first one where he was able to basically take it to fruition. So, John B. Calhoun, an American ethologist and behavioral researcher, conducted a study. Like I said, they called it Universe 25 at the end of the study, but it wasn't during the, the process. Because like I said, Universe 25 was just the, the not the final one, but the one where he finally got, you know, got it fully played out and everything else. So, um, and the study examined the consequences of overpopulation on rats and made dire predictions that these events would have an, on humans. So this study was in collaboration with the National Institute of Mental Health, which is very interesting because for those of us my age, um, if most of you remember a, a movie called The Secret of Nim about some rats that escaped, rats and mice that escaped from scientists and everything else, well, The Secret of Nim, and most of us probably never knew this, at least I didn't until I was doing this research, NIM was the National Institute of Mental Health. This, The Secret of NIM, that movie, is based off mice that, you know, fantastically escaped from Universe 25. So, yes, um, not that there was any that actually escaped in real life, but that's what the movie is based off of. So... In this study, Calhoun developed the ideal mouse universe for his research. Unlimited food and water, many floors, private nesting spaces that, you know, appeared to be rat and mouse utopias that gradually devolved into tumultuous overcrowding that caused population to decline and is then followed by the members' unsettling abnormal behaviors. Now, here's the thing, though, is I keep getting all these ones and I keep reading these ones. I keep talking about how overcrowding caused this not really if you actually do a lot of the research and really look at it the uh the amount of mice at the peak was still well below the amount of mice that could have been you know the the max amount of mice that could have been in the study so so universe 25 experiment like we said which calhoun repeated 25 times so that's why it's universe 25 um, in various scales, after years of method development, he saw unsettling consistent outcomes each time. 
These habitats have a straightforward design. Electrical fences split the layout's 10 by 14 foot rectangle into four equally sized pieces. Each part included a food hopper, water source, and nesting spaces that were similar to one another. So very ideal, similar places, a utopia. So the room he planned for his last experiment could have held 3,840 mice, but at its peak, it only held 2,200. And at that 2,200, that was the peak. After that, it actually started to decline until the point where basically they all died. Um, the dominant males. So, um, like I said, it, it devolved very quickly after it hit, you know, 2,200. And it was actually in the process of devolving before we hit 2,200. So, um you ended up getting dominant males that would occasionally bite and injure the tails of other members, especially young children. Um, and then they go into behavioral sync, which we will talk about here more in a bit. Um, which show up in females as a decreased capacity for raising young and creating nests. Since many females adopted more violent behaviors or would forego mother responsibilities entirely, the infant death rate jumped to 90%. So the nice, nice would mate and breed in large quantities to start with. And eventually that would level off and the rodents would develop either hostile antisocial behaviors and the population would trail off to extinction. And that happened in every single case. So according to Calhoun, there were two stages to the death phase. The first death, which was characterized by the loss of a reason for living beyond merely existing, such as the desire to mate, raise children, or establish a place in society. And the second death, which was the actual death and the extinction of Universe 25. So, with their findings, they concluded the experiment while predicting that these pathological alterations would eventually result in the extinction of the colonies. He would select the four healthiest males and females at the end of the experiment and allow them to reproduce, but their behavior had been irrevocably changed and none of their offspring survived. So, even once they took them out of the environment, they had already became and got this behavioral sink so far into them that they still wouldn't reproduce. And even if they did reproduce, the children never survived because they had no maternal instincts to raise them at this point. So, it's, it shows that it wasn't just something like being in, and that was one of the things, and a lot of this, um, and some of these different iterations he would take, because we will talk about there was the beautiful mice, which we'll get to, um, at one point, he took some of the beautiful mice out of the experiment and put them in another enclosure to see if their behavior would change and if they would start to take care of themselves, and they didn't. Once they got that behavior becoming the beautiful mice, they remained that way. So, and this was a thing where a lot of people, you know, if you really go in the research and look at it, um, they had nothing, they wanted for nothing. They had everything handed to them. The food, the nesting, every, I think it was four to six weeks, they would go through and clean the entire cages for them. So they were clean, well taken care of. You know, they pretty much made sure they were free of disease, everything else to see what would happen. And they still devolved into death. And this was within, you know, a couple generations. It was usually, um, I think one of the ones that I was reading said it was three years. Within three years, this happened. From they started with four mice, and because mice, you know, within 55 days, they pretty much said that they would double in size. Every 55 days, the population would double um, until, like I said, they hit 22,000 or 2,200, and then everything went to shit from there. So, yeah. So, very interesting. Like I said, this was a very long experiment. It was 18 years 
um, overall, not just for the one universe. It was 18 years for all of them repeatedly doing this over and over again. And every time, you know, it was the same, same thing. So, um, and it's kind of one of those things, like I said, they've done this for years. So he started the experiment in 1968 by introducing four couples in a spatially designed pen, a veritable rodent garden of Eden with numerous apartments, abundant nesting supplies, and unlimited food and water. The only scarce resource in this microcosm was physical space. So, um, which like I said, but they gave enough room for over, you know, 3,600. And they never peaked above 22. Um, Calhoun had been running similar experiments with those for decades, but it always had to end them prematurely, ironically, because of laboratory space constraints. So, this iteration, like I said, dubbed Universe 25, was the first crowding experiment he ran to completion. So, as he had anticipated, the utopia became hellish nearly a year in, when the population density began to peak, and then population growth abruptly and dramatically slowed. Animals became increasingly violent, developed abnormal sexual behaviors, and began neglecting or even attacking their own pups. Calhoun termed this breakdown of social order a behavioral sink. Eventually, Universe 25 took another disturbing turn. Mice born into the chaos couldn't form normal social bonds or engage in complex social behaviors, such as courtship, mating, and pup rearing. Instead of interacting with their peers, males compulsively groomed themselves. So, and those would be the beautiful mice. Females stopped getting pregnant. Effectively, uh, they became trapped in an infantile state of early development. Even when removed from Universe 25 and introduced to normal mice, ultimately the con colony would die out. So once they'd gone into that stage, there was no recovery. Um, and what they, the beautiful mice, what those were, it was basically just like they said. It was male mice that pretty much cared not about nothing, and actually it was male and female, um, that cared nothing about grooming, but to groom themselves. They groomed themselves, they ate and groomed themselves, and that was it. And they had luscious, beautiful fur, uh, but they did nothing else. They did not mate. They did not do anything but groom and eat until they died. Um, so they did, would not reproduce. So, like we said, Calhoun was not shy um, about anthropomorphizing his findings, uh, bending rodents into categories such as juvenile delinquents and social dropouts, and others seized on these human parallels. Population growth in the 1970s with swellings in films such as Soylent Green, which you've never seen Soylent Green, that's a great one. It talks about where the, the population growth got so high um, in overpopulation that um, they all they had for nutrition was what Soylent, it was uh, called Soylent Green, um, and Soylent Green was made from humans. It was dead humans that were ground into meat and made into food. It's a great movie, which is really good because there's something out there. I can't remember what product, but there is a product out there called Soylent Green, and every time I see it, I want to crack up because it's like, do you know what that is? So, yeah. So this is one of those things, too. You know, a lot of people note that uh, Calhoun didn't actually necessarily think humanity was doomed. Uh, some of Calhoun's other crowding experiments, rodents developed innovative tunneling behaviors, while in others adding more rooms allowed the animals to live in the high-density environment without being forced in unwanted contact with others. So there are some things here where it's a lot of people took this as showing that this is what's going to happen with humans. Humans are going to do this. This is what's going to happen eventually. We're going to go into, you know, this kind of stuff. And a lot of people look at this as now that we're already going into this. They were already in some of these stages. That the beautiful people, just like the beautiful mice, are already here. 
You know, we have people that groom themselves and care nothing more about than grooming themselves and looking good and everything else, which, I mean, I sometimes I agree with that. I see that. It's like one of those things. I was at the gym earlier this week and noticed that, you know, um, half the people in the gym were filming themselves so they could post it on Instagram and TikTok and everything else. They didn't actually care about working out. They just cared about looking good for their followers. Um, so, I mean, that could be an argument of the beautiful people, you know, that go along with the, the beautiful mice. So some things there, it's a very interesting study. Like I said, once I started going down that study, though, I started going down other other avenues and seeing other things. Um, the other big one, too, is like we mentioned was behavioral sync, which was a big thing that came out of this. Was behavioral sync is a term that was invented by ethologist John B. Calhoun to describe a collapse in behavior which can result from overcrowding. The term and concept derived from a series of overpopulating experiments that he conducted with Norway rats between 58 and 62. So, which is Universe 25 that we just talked about. In the experiments, Calhoun has researched created a series of rat utopias in closed spaces, which rats were given unlimited access to food and water. Um, and during this, like I said, Calhoun coined the term behavioral sink. In his February 1st, 1962 report, in an article titled Population Density and Social Pathology. So, that was... Um, put out in Scientific American. It's an interesting article if you can find it. He would later perform similar experiments on mice from 68 to 72. Um, the 68 to 72 was, uh, that's when he did Universe 25. He did do some other ones with rats from 58 to 62. So, Callan's work became used as an animal model of societal collapse and his study has become a touchstone of urban sociology and psychology in general. So, in the study in 62, this is how he described the behaviors. Many female rats were unable to carry pregnancy to full term or to survive delivery of their litters if they did. An even greater number, after successfully giving birth, fell short in their maternal functions. Among the males, the behavioral disturbances ranged from sexual deviation to cannibalism and from fanatic overactivity to a pathological withdrawal from which individuals would emerge to eat, drink, and move about only when other members of the community were asleep. The social organization of the animals showed equal disruption. The common source of these disturbances became most dramatically apparent in the populations of our first series of three experiments, in which we observed the development of what we call the behavioral sink. The animals would crowd together in great number um, in one of the four interconnecting pens in which the colony was maintained. As many as 60 of the 80 rats in each experimental population would assemble in one pen during periods of feeding. Individual rats would rarely eat except in the company of other rats. As a result, extreme population densities developed in the pen adopted for eating, leaving others with sparse populations. So the overcrowding actually didn't become because of lack of space. It's because they all wanted to be in the same space. And that's where a lot of this became very weird. So... In the experiments in which the behavioral sync developed, infant mortality ran as high as 96% among the most disoriented groups in the population. Um, very interesting. The behavioral sync is a whole thing. And it's something that we talk about too. Once again, you know, people try and bring this into humanity, but it doesn't always completely fit. So, so the specific voluntary, there's kind of a, a little explanation that some people have on this. The specific voluntary crowding of rats to which the term behavioral sync refers is thought to have resulted from the earlier involuntarily involuntary crowding. Individual rats became, became so used to the proximity of others while eating that they began to associate feeding with the company of other rats. 
Calhoun eventually found a way to prevent this by changing some of the settings and thereby decreased mortality somewhat, but the overall pathological consequences of overcrowding remained. So, the applicability to humans in this, Calhoun himself saw the fate of the population of mice as a metaphor for the potential fate of humankind. He characterized the social breakdown as a spiritual death, with reference to bodily death as a second death, mentioned in the biblical verse Revelation 2.11. Controversy exists over the implications of the experiment. Psychologist Jonathan Friedman, uh, Friedman's experiment recruited high school and university students to carry out a series of experiments that measured the effects of density on human behavior. He measured their stress, discomfort, aggressions, competitiveness, and general unpleasantness. He declared they found no appreciable negative effects in 75. Researchers argued that Calhoun's work was not simply about density in a physical sense as a number of individuals per square unit area, but was about degrees of social interaction. So it got weird. There's a lot of things that we can take from this and a lot of things that I think people have taken too far. Um, for one, it's rats. I mean, not sound bad. We're looking at sociality of rats. Rats don't have the same mental... Abilities that humans do. One thing that we've shown quite a bit with humans when we run into something like this or problems, humans find a way out. We find a way to survive. I mean, it's one of those things to think about. Think about human beings in, in the world. Humans, how many animals out there can kill us? Pretty much all of them. Dogs, you know, you got lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. I mean, all of these things can kill us, but somehow we became the dominant species on this planet. Why? Because we have brains. We have the ability to think, the ability to fix complex problems by using our brain. Can other animals fix problems and do things like that? Yes, some of them can. You, we've seen it in you know, uh, monkeys, we've seen it in mice, we've seen it in other things like that, but we became the ones that were able to make things. We made, you are listening to this most likely on a computer or a cell phone. You have a supercomputer in your hand every day because that's how humans have made, been made to survive. We come up with technology to continue on. And we're not going to run into a lot of the things that they talk about here. Which brings us to the next thing. So that's Universe 25, which is fascinating. But that brings us to a whole nother, whole nother thing of Mal... And I'm going to say this really bad because we all know I can't pronounce things. Malthusianism. Malthusianism. Yeah, whatever. So, <laughs> so Malthusianism is an economic theory advanced by the English economist and demographer Thomas Malthus. So according to which population growth will always tend to outpace the supply of food. So first presented by Malthus in his anonymous pamphlet and essay on the principle of population as it affects the future improvement of society with remarks on speculations of Mr. Goodwin and Cordeset and other writers. It's a long title. Malthusianism Malthusianism represents a form of economic pessimism that challenges utopian notions of the perfectibility of human societies, as exemplified in the work of the English anarchist philosopher William Goodwin. Goodwin and Malthus hated each other. Hated each other. They had a lot of issues, and we'll go through Goodwin here in a minute. But first, we're going we're gonna to stay with Malthus. So, in Malthus's view, a human society free of coercive restraints is an impossible ideal. 
because the threat of population growth will always be present. Increases in population, if unchecked, will take place in a geometric progression. While the means of subsistence will increase in only an arithmetic prog progression, a society's population therefore will always expand to the limit of subsistence. So, the argument presented in the first edition of Malthus's work on population was essentially abstract and analytic. After further reading and travels in Europe, Malthus produced a subsequent edition in 1803, expanding the pamphlet of 1798 into a longer book and adding much factual material and illustration to his thesis. He collected information on one country that had plentiful land, the United States, and estimated that its population was doubling in less than 20, 25 years. He attributed the far lower rates of European population growth to preventative checks, giving special emphasis to the characteristic late marriage pattern of Western Europe, which he called moral restraint. Other preventative checks to which he alluded included birth control, abortion, adultery, and homosexuality, all of which, as an Anglican minister, he considered immoral. I mean... <clears throat> All the things that he considered that would basically make it so that we wouldn't have the population growth, um, his his church didn't allow. So according to Malthus, societies that ignore the imperative for moral restraint, delayed marriage and celibacy for adults until they were economically able to support their children, would suffer the deplorable positive checks of war, famine, and epidemic. The avoidance of which should be every society's goal. Goal from this hum humane concern. Uh, about the sufferings from positive checks arose Malthus' a domination that poor laws, i.e. legal measures that provide relief to the poor, so basically, you know, social, you know, socialized help, and charity must not cause their beneficiaries to relax their moral. Um, restraint or increase their fertility, lest such humanitarian gestures become perversely counterproductive. Malthusianism exerted an important influence upon the ideas of classical and neoclassical economists, economists, demographers, and evolutionary biologists led by Charles Darwin. So he came up with the whole idea that basically what his thought was is that the human race was going to keep producing and making more people and eventually we're going to hit a point where we have more people than we do resources which is a big thing that we keep hearing constantly and we still hear people talking about how we're going to out you know we're going to outgrow you know our 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 resources that at some point we're going to get to be to where we have so many people on this planet that we're not going to have enough resources to deal with them um which is why a lot of people think that you know bill gates has now become the biggest you know owner of farmlands in the united states bill gates you know if you go back and listen to our bill gates episode we talk about how bill gates owns more agricultural than anybody in the you know the United States now. He is the biggest farmer in the United States. Now, why would he do that? If not for the fact that he thinks or he knows or whatever that he needs to get control of that because it's become a huge commodity. Especially when all the birds start getting sick. I keep telling him, if you just put a mask on the birds, they'd be fine. That bird flu would be no problem. So William Goodwin's another one that we mentioned there who had a whole nother different idea on you know, how the world and how humans would evolve. So, uh, William Goodwin was a social philosopher, political journalist, and religious dissenter who anticipated the English romantic literary movement with his writings, advancing atheism, 
anarchism and personal freedom. Godwin's idealistic liberalism was based on the principle of the absolute sovereignty and competence of reason to determine right choice. An optimist regarding man's future perfectibility, he combined cultural determinations with the doctrine of extreme individualism. The object of his principal work in an inquiry concerning political justice and influence on general virtue and happiness was to reject conventional government by demonstrating the corrupting evil and tyranny inherent in its power of manipulation. He proposed in its place small self-subsisting communities. He argued that social institutions fail because they impose on man generalized thought categories and preconceived ideas, which make it impossible to see things as they are. It has been claimed that Godwin's works laid the foundations for the mutually contradictory doctrines of communism and anarchy. In fact, their, uh, their germ, though undeveloped, is to be found in two separate elements in his thinking. He advocated neither the abolition nor the communalization of property. Property was to be held as sacred trust at the disposal of him whose need was greatest. His most powerful personal belief was that everything understood by the term Cooperation is in some sense an evil from which preceded his most influential anarchic doctrines. So, he had pretty much the other idea that basically, you know, we needed to... Eventually, if we we left man kind of alone, we would find our way. Which I think somewhere in the middle of all of this um, is the real answer. That somewhere along the way, you know, Godwin... And it's one of those things, um, Godwin and... Uh, Malthus had a huge fight. They hated each other. Um, in a lot of ways, if you really go down the rabbit hole in these two, um, it almost feels like it was personal at some point, which is very weird. But that's the truth. So, but right now, with a big thing that we run into with a lot of this, and I think a lot of the, you know, um, idea of climate change and everything else comes from a lot of this of that we're overusing our, our resources and see a lot of people really think that the overpopulation is uh is a myth it's one of those things that we're, we're never really going to hit this so um the claim that the world would become dangerously overpopulated has never been true really a lot of people believe um a lot of people believe it was false when it was first postulated in the 19th century it was false when the population bomb was first published in the 1960s and it's false now that the theory still taught in grade schools all over the world doesn't make it any truer. It still remains a false theory. So, and this is some. This is an article that I'm reading. Um, someone wrote that there was a development through time of an oddly utopian idea that the human misery can end with the end of humanity, or at least the end of a good portion of it. So, we're going to talk about different things here. Um, the, there was huge proponents, United Nations Population Fund. So, talk about the difference between feminist wing and the pure population control wing of the, the movement and all this. So, this war on the concept of people is now more than a century old. It has moved through four distinct but closely related stages. Malthusianism, eugenics, the population bomb, and now is in the, the stage known as reproductive rights. So, Malthusianism, like we mentioned, named for the early 19th century scientist Thomas Malthus, posited that having too many people in the world is the inevitable cause of many maladies, among them hunger, starvation, disease, and war. Series suggests the population of the world grows exponentially, while food production does not, with the inevitable result of massive starvation. 
So, not thoroughly discredited until the advent of modern farming techniques in the 20th century. And that's where a lot of Malthusianism went out the window. Because it was, you know, once we got into the 20th century and actually started having new farming techniques and everything else, it changed a lot of that. Changed a lot of those thoughts. So, the next stop in the step in the movement came with the advent of eugenics. The theory that out all races are the same and that the bad races must die out to make room for the good ones. So the bad races generally corresponded with those who were poorer and darker than the proponents of eugenics. Early proponents of this theory included Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who openly expressed racist beliefs and who was admired by the Nazi regime. So uh, these facts are not put in Sanger's biology, but I'm pretty sure we talked about this when we talked about eugenics at some point. Um, I'm pretty sure we did an episode on that, but... Look into that. So that was kind of the eugenics craze. So the eugenics craze was the next thing where we talked about that. Um, and it's kind of one of those things. It's one of those I get in trouble all the time because I tell people all the time that I feel like, you know, um, at times that Thanos was right and that we do need to get rid of half of everything. But I don't think anyone should pick what half. And that's where I think eugenics was wrong. They got to pick. So once you start picking who gets to stay and who gets to go, now we got problems. So, of course, the Nazis gave eugenics it's, it's probably bad name so population theory went underground so gussies itself up and re-emerged in the 50s when the imprimatur of the american political and academic establishment it came with a new name the population explosion which harkened back to the work of malthus but still targeted dark-skinned populations in the developing world instead of simply saying the world would run out of food and now posited that the world would run out of nearly everything including food natural resources and eventually room to walk around in the population bomb theory drove the movement through the 1960s until the early 90s and even beyond the chief feature of the population bomb scare has been coercion it is a proponent suggested overpopulation was a dire threat to the entire planet. Then policymakers believe that some populations must be forced to reduce their numbers. Which is one of those big things that, you know, right now we go back to reducing the numbers. What country tried to do that in a very interesting way, in a very way that did not work? We go to China. So, which was one of those ones that tried to do that. So, almost always, coercion comes from the hands of governments directed at their own people. The most famous examples of coercion occur in developing world countries like China and Peru. The cases of coercion there are well documented and very obvious. Women in these countries were given abortions against their will. Others were sterilized without their knowledge. Still, others were bribed with food and medicine in exchange for abortion and sterilization. These instances occur mostly in the developing world, but even in the United States, which we did talk about. There's an earlier episode. If you go back towards the eugenics, we talk about this, where they did do this. They sterilized American women without their consent and sometimes without their knowledge. So, But even in the United States, there are well-publicized cases in which poor, drug-addicted women are paid cash by private groups for getting sterilized. So make sure that the bad populations can't continue to grow. While corrosion occurs mostly at the hands of poor governments on their own poor people, the impetus for it comes from rich Western countries, chief the United States and those in the European Union, but also from various international institutions, most notably the United Nations. So all these things, and this is one of those things that we say a lot, not all government agencies are bad, but most of them are. They have an agenda. They always have an agenda. So the United States government helped to found, found the UN Fund of Population Activities in 1969 to be a nonpartisan clearinghouse for population and demographic information. 
The UNFPA, however, quickly evolved into an advocacy group that has had a hand in more than one coercive population control program. Within 10 years of its founding, for instance, UNFPA assisted in the establishment of the most brutal population control program the world has ever seen. With the direct help of the UNFPA, the Chinese government instituted a policy that forbade women from having more than one child in their lifetime. Some women who tried to have more than one child were forced into having abortions. Others were fined to such a high degree for a second pregnancy that they had no choice but to have an abortion. Indeed, according to the Washington Post, in just first in the first six years of the program, 50 million forced abortions occurred in China. Under threat of using, losing U.S. financial assistance, UNFPA eventually promised to limit its activities to only 32 Chinese counties and promised that all forms of coercion in the, those countries would end. This even though UNFPA denied that any coercion existed at all. UNFPA further promised that if coercion still existed in any of those 32 counties, they would leave China altogether. In 2002, the U.S. government determined that coercion still existed in those 32 counties, that UNFPA was complicit in providing technical assistance and promptly withdrew financial support. UNFPA still denies coercion exists in the 32 counties, and UNFPA continues to publicly place the Chinese one-child policy. Um, that policy has actually been ended um, just in the last, I think, three or four years. China is not the only place where UNFPA has been approved, has proven to assist in coercion. Not long ago, the Peruvian government, led by former President Fujimori, pursued a very aggressive population control program against native peasant women. U.S. government investigators found that these women were tricked into sterilizations under the guise of other procedures. Other women were withheld food until they agreed to sterilizations. UNFPA was a financier of the Peruvian program, and the forced and coerced sterilizations occurred in UFPA facilities. Though UNFPA denied coercion existing in the Peruvian program, they commissioned a study that confirmed for them that coercion did exist in the program. UNFPA's response to its own negative report was to bury it and lie about it. Ooh, big surprise. And recently, as the summer of 2002, UNFPA denied the existence of the report, which had been unearthed by a Peruvian journalist. At the time that these debates raged during the 1990s, the population controllers once more began to change their terms. They determined quite quite correctly that population control was getting bad press. It would be used as too top-down, in the words of population control advocates. Additional to the bad press, population control advocates also began receiving reports from their own demographers, which presented startling information. The drive to slow population growth by discouraging fertility was becoming more successful than anyone could imagine. Though not revealed to the general public until the late 1990s, it was becoming obvious to demographic experts by the time of the Cairo Conference on Population and Development in 1994 that fertility rates were plummeting rapidly all over the world. So, yeah. And there was a switch in terminology, of course. First, they determined that the top-down approach and the phrase population control were no longer tenable. Secondly, they already knew or suspected that fertility rates were plummeting, and they feared that policymakers would conclude that population control was no longer necessary. So, in the 90s, they'd already showed that population was slowing. Third, they wanted fertility rates and therefore population control continued to decline. Their solution to these sticky problems was to cloak the old theory of overpopulation in the language of human rights. The political argument par excellence of the late 20th century enter the phrase reproductive rights. The thinking went that if everyone demanded and received their reproductive rights as defined by the UN, then fertility rates would continue to decline. So under the guidance and support of UNFPA, the United Nations began the international call for reproductive rights at the Cairo Conference. 
French on population development in 1994. So this is kind of one of those things where it goes into, you know, more of should women have reproductive rights? Yes. But like a lot of things that people give and do, um, they were given under a false pretense. The idea of them was basically to hide the fact that it's it's all about government control and population control. And that's kind of the one things we talked about when we talked about eugenics and Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood was originally supposed to be population control. Because if you get, you know, you Planned Parenthood was open in poor neighborhoods, poor everything else. All of these go back to stopping poor, <clears throat> poor neighborhoods and people that they determined less than from reproducing and only allowing those that are worthy to reproduce and everything else. Even though at this point, they're already talking about in the 90s, the, the rates of reproduction were going down. It's one of those things I think a lot of people miss is if you think about it, in the early 1900s, 1800s, before that, everything else, families had, you know, it was not unheard of to have families with 12, 15, 16 children because they needed them around the farm to do the work. Well, we don't need that now. And most of the time with our families, you know, like my family, I have four kids, which at this point, a lot of people think is too many. That's a lot for nowadays thoughts. You know, four kids is quite a bit. You know, people normally it's, you know, two to three, if that. I mean, I think the world average right now is 2.1. So, and that is basically just enough to keep where we're at. We just cross over 8 billion people in the world. At this point, most people think, you know, with how everything's growing, that should mean we should be in billions and billions and billions by the time we hit like 2100. And that's not what they're stating. They're actually saying that they're predicting that by the year 2100, we should be somewhere between 7 and 9 billion. Right where we're at right now. That we actually won't become any more. We actually, we're going to start, you know, um, basically level off. At this point. Um, and that's just kind of, you know, one of those things that a lot of people don't think about. That we're not going to keep growing. So, um, here, let's see. U.S. population. So, the population grew by 0.1% in 2021. The world population. 0.1%. Not a whole lot. So, we're not going and growing as quick as people think we are. So which is probably good you know we're we're at a point now where we're just if we go at 2.1 is what they say we should be at that would be enough that would be pretty much keep the world right at the level we're at because you got to give the 0.1 because two people obviously two children that keeps it equal but the 0.1 you got to figure out you know death rates and stuff like that so it should keep us about the right the same population we're at now um we're not going to grow like they think we are. Um, the thing we're going to run into is pretty much, you know, I, I really think as human beings, we're going to find ways to get past this. We're going to find technology. That's what we've done every time. Really, you got to think back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago when we first started out, we were hunter-gatherers. Um, we, we ate, we, we hunted food, we ate meat. Um, if we'd stayed with that, we would have, we at 500 million, we wouldn't have been able to sustain life on this planet but then we were able to start growing and become agricultural and now we're able to sustain with agriculture uh, we find a way as humans we find a way to to continue our, our society at this point i mean honestly i don't see the human race 
imploding like Universe 25 did. For one, we're not wrapped. We will find a way to get through it. We always have. We always do. I mean, if you think about it, how often do we have... I mean, every hundred years right now, we have a plague that runs through and takes out a bunch of people, but still we survive. We find a way past it. We find a way to continue on. Um, we won't go into the whole idea that, that that's really interesting how it happens exactly every hundred years, almost like someone's planning it. That's a whole nother, nother episode. But, I mean, we, we have world wars. We have everything else, but still we learn how to survive. We learn how to continue on. Um... We just have different lives than we did then. Um, I think the biggest thing, I think what would maybe happen to the humans is maybe the beautiful the beautiful mice. Um, I think in some ways we are becoming too easy on ourselves. We are becoming a very, you know, lazy society um, and lazy people. Um, but I think the other part that's going to happen is basically what's happening in China right now. They have, they're, they're upside down um, in population. Right now there's not enough young people to take care of the old and we're seeing that in other countries too because the population growth has slowed down so much there's actually more older people than there are younger people and there's not enough people to take over the jobs there's not enough people to take over jobs and, and you know to take care of the people especially when you got a country like China that's a communist country that one I think is going to be their downfall is the fact that they don't have enough young people to take over and to take the jobs of the people that are, are you know getting too old to be able to work and the fact of the one child rule made it so a lot of times people would abort or you know kill right out murder a baby that was a, a, a girl because they wanted the name their name to continue on and they wanted a boy so now there's a, a a it's an un it's an unbalanced mix of male and female in china now where there's a lot more males about 20 percent more males than there are females which doesn't sound like a lot until you think of that's 20 percent of the population that will not be able to reproduce because they won't have a partner so it's going to it's going to continue to make it worse as things go on, you know, and um, like I said, they have gotten rid of the one child rule so far um, because of the fact that they're seeing it now. They've damaged themselves so much by that one child rule and basically having their population of young people that it's detrimental to their society that I, I don't think they're going to be able to recover very well from. Um and the same thing's going to happen with others. I think it's going to start getting less and less. As we become more and more like, you know, it was almost like Malthus thought that if we waited to have children until we were older, that people would have less. It's kind of like I watched the movie Idiocracy in preparation for this too. And that was kind of the idea that they showed in that where it was the poor, you know, the poor people that were having babies younger um, and everything else but the people that waited to get married and waited for everything else they waited for the perfect time and just never had kids so in that case you know everyone became stupid i don't think i don't know kind of seeing the way society's going now that is a possibility too but i think i think we can come out of this i think it's just a matter of what's going to happen is like they say soft times create hard times which create hard people so and i think that's what's going to happen the soft times that we have we're going to have, we have hard times coming. If you go back, it's like we keep saying with the, the, the cycles, the world goes in cycles. And if you actually look at a lot of things, there was a lot of soft times that happened before World War One. They don't seem soft to us 
because of where we're at now and the technology and everything that we have now. But as far as society, the times were kind of soft right before World War One, and then World War One created a very tough, you know, what they consider some of the toughest, you know, generation of all time. Um, so I, I would not be surprised that we got something else coming like that. You know, we got everything going on with Russia and Ukraine now. Who knows where that's going to end up? Um, so this was kind of like I said, it was an interesting, a fun one, just an idea of population control. We've talked about it before. It's just another different iteration of it. Um, I think they're trying. I think they're trying to convince us. They're trying to proper, you know, they're, they're, it's propaganda where they make us believe that this whole idea of population control, that we need to do all this stuff, that we're going to be overpopulated. I don't think we're going to get there. I think the thing that we're going to run into is basically what we're running into. It's not that we're overpopulated or the country is over or the, the world is overpopulated. The cities are overpopulated. It's like everyone always talks about when you think of New York, you see New York, you see the, the giant city of New York City. If you actually look at a map of New York, there's beautiful countryside out there. You know, like Washington, you go into Seattle, cesspool, 30 minute drive, you're in the freaking woods. And you're out of the cesspool and you're out there. There's nobody around for hundreds of miles. I mean, and those are some of the things that we don't think about. You can go into these places and there is plenty of land out there. We're just not using it and everyone is bunched in on each other. Um, and I think we just, I mean, honestly, people need to spread out. Get out of the city. Get out of the city. Get away from people. Get away from the, the, the cesspool that is the city and go go find a nice countryside somewhere and read a book. So I'm going to leave you guys on that. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you to, you know, Fringe Radio Network for, for putting us on air and, and always supporting us. Go listen to some of their episodes and their other shows. They are great. Um, send us an email at downtherh at protonmail.com. Um, you can message me, Mr. Underscore B underscore 666 on Instagram. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you, 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 know, you, you were able to follow my insane ram ramblings. Thank you, and see you later. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.